Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. And I'm Natalie Sawyer. It's fantastic to have you back. You don't know how many complaints we got while you were away. I don't think you had any, but thank you for having me back. And with us in the studio, it is Mr. James Gearbrandt. Who's wearing glasses today. No, He's going to be on fire. And down the line, it is Alan Smith. You're in Ireland right now, right? Yeah, yeah, fixing the backstop issue. There you go, there you go. Time well spent. Later on, we'll be discussing more away day blues for Arsenal and also an FA Cup classic at Wembley. But we start with the Champions League quarterfinals kicking off this week with four English clubs represented in the last eight. And of course, two of them face off at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium on Tuesday. Spurs hosting Manchester City in the first leg. So the question is, how hard does the new venue make this game to predict, Gab? It's funny. I think to what Kevin De Bruyne said when he's like, I'm paraphrasing him, but like stadium. So what? Every team has a stadium. Like, because Spurs have only really played there once, you know, they're still slightly finding their feet. You're kind of in awe. Might take some time for it to come to life. But I also don't think that you need any kind of particular motivation. It's a Champions League quarterfinal. It's huge for Tottenham. And I think it can only be beneficial. What do you think, James? Does the stadium matter? Yeah, I I think it will have an effect, probably not enough to sort of, you know, completely counteract Manchester City's favourite status. I think they will still be favourites. It's interesting because it kind of comes back to the question of why you think home advantage is, is an advantage. Is it because of the familiarity of playing somewhere, in which case, you know, obviously barely any more familiar for Tottenham than it is for Manchester City? Is it the psychological boost of it and, you know, sort of the connection you have with your fans and the joy of sort of playing somewhere that, you know, everyone's really happy and excited to be? And I think if it's that, obviously it could have it could have quite a big effect. And, and of course, one thing to remember is that the old White Hart Lane was somewhere that Tottenham really did have a, a sort of a really big home advantage. I think in their, I think I'm right in saying in their final Premier League season at White Hart Lane, they won 18 and drew one. There really seemed to be at the old White Hart Lane a real kind of connection between the fans and the team that really seemed to kind of bring something out of of Spurs, draw an extra kind of level of performance. And it will obviously will be interesting to see, not just in this game, but obviously over the coming games, whether whether that endures at the at the new White Hart Lane. 
Alan, do you think Spurs can end City's quadruple hopes? Um, I struggle to see it happening. Um, just in terms of the stadium, I'd be kind of interested to see what the atmosphere is actually like. Because if you think of that Palace game last week, you could sort of, before Spurs took the lead, you could just, through the sort of TV feed, you could hear Palace fans singing. You couldn't really hear the Spurs fans. I mean, City have beaten such good form and it's 14 wins in a row now and obviously Spurs despite beating Palace last week haven't really been that good of late of course there were a the, couple of defeats of defeat to Liverpool especially the one at Southampton where they were really really poor and I just kind of feel like on current form City are operating on a level above Spurs and being two legs I kind of you know really really fancy City to, to progress I suspect and we've seen Poch do this before he might throw some sort of curveball tactically, some sort of something he does different in this game to to try to catch Pep off guard. Because obviously Pep can just kind of play his game and he's favoured. But interestingly, we've seen Pep not do that, haven't we? In previous sort of Champions League quarterfinals, we've seen Pep overcomplicate or try and sort of be almost too clever tactically. Like, for example, against Liverpool when he didn't play Sterling, I think, last year. And he played Gundogan instead of Sterling. And I think there was a time at Bayern where he sort of... It's a good point. He, when played, he, when he, he played a three-man defence. And I remember with, in his first season when they, they played Barcelona away, I think, and they got hammered. He dropped Aguero. Yeah. And played without sort of a centre-forward because he wanted to control the midfield. That's it. That's a good point. Proceed. Continue. Well, no, but he, he he's done this a few times where he is tactically sort of overcomplicated, particularly at sort of this stage in the Champions League. So last season, he he tried to be, I think, a bit too clever against Liverpool. He dropped Sterling and he played Gundogan instead. There was definitely a time during his time at Bayern when he played. I think it was I think it was the the year they played Barcelona and he played a three man defence and it yeah, was a bit of a nightmare and it was a bit Bayern, of a nightmare. Yeah. Pep definitely does have a bit of a history of getting it wrong in the sort of latter stages of the Champions League. Alan, are, are we, are we going to see this or sort of like Pep sits there and thinks, ooh, Poch is going to try to outfox me, let me outfox him by giving him, and it's like sort of double reverse psychology? Yeah, I'd be quite interested to see if De Bruyne actually starts because, you know, he's, he's suddenly come back in the past two games as impressed quite a bit and you know this would be a, a again obviously a big step up in terms of playing Brighton you know, no disrespect to, to Brighton but at Barcelona and Bayern he, he always has this tendency to just sort of overthink matters whether it's his you know maybe perhaps he's doubting himself and he kind of thinks you know I need to sort of try something different and do something completely off the wall to catch the manager out so uh, I'll be quite interested to see to see the lineup put up you know if he keeps the kind of Keep them rolling as such. You know, again, I can't see very upsetting City over two legs. Against that, I, I would say that I actually think Pep has been noticeably less funky this season. I think yeah. if you remember, there were times sort of in the past couple of seasons where the Manchester City team sheet were coming, and you'd be like, I mean, you'd be like, what formation is that? And you just sort of wouldn't. But this season, I think he's actually been noticeably less funky. He's really just. I think particularly for the past, since the turn of the year, he's really just played that 4-3-3 quite consistently, I think. Well, also on Tuesday night, Liverpool host Porto in the first leg. The Reds beat Porto 5-0 on aggregate in the last 16 last season. And, good news is, Mo Salah has ended his goal drought. Everything points to Liverpool, given also that you know, Porto are embroiled in a really, really tight title race in, in the Portuguese league. 
But I just wonder, though, and we had a good piece in, in the paper with uh, Flinders, who was on Klopp's staff, but worked at Porto for, for a long time, uh, overseeing different development teams and, and youth teams. And he just kind of talked about why Porto have been so good over the years and so consistent. And kind of drove the point home to me that this really stung them when they were, you know, when they were sort of so comprehensively overwhelmed last year. And they'll have some sort of plan in, in place. I'm just looking forward. I, I wonder, from a neutral's perspective, right, the idea of Pepe against Mosala, you know, Pepe now 36 years old, um, and Iker Casillas between the sticks. Like, they have a couple golden oldies. They have a tremendous... One of the best young defenders in Europe, in in Eder Militao, who's going to um, Real Madrid next year. I don't know. I could see this at least this first like turning into the kind of thing where Liverpool don't score early, and then it's a siege, and then you know Anfield gets gets louder and louder, and it's one of those sort of heroic things until Pepe does something silly. Well, on to Wednesday night, Manchester United take on Barcelona. Since winning at PSG, though, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side have lost three of their last four. You concerned, Alan? If I was a Manchester United supporter, yes. Um, Obviously, Barcelona have sort of, you know, just beaten Atletico in the league and have opened up an 11-point gap there. So they don't really have to worry about the league anymore. They can sort of really focus on on the Champions League. Um, United, that can't be said. Um, Despite Solskjaer's sort of positive work initially when he when he came in this sort of sixth position still fighting to break it to, you know to end up in the top four and they have wider concerns um in terms of the game itself i mean admittedly I haven't watched every single barcelona game this season but you know messi just seems to be kind of still operating on a completely different level but the players around him tend to kind of have these occasions where they dip and you know they've they relied on him quite a bit to sort of dig them out of trouble but you know, he sort of, you kind of think whoever starts a centre-back or whoever starts a back four for United are going to have complete nightmares if he's on form. First, like being at Old Trafford as well, I think, you know, despite the PSG result, should probably play against United because if they go to the new camp and you know, need a result, I'd kind of, I would fear for them there. This is one of those things where, you know, Ernesto Valverde hasn't, he hasn't excited a lot of Barcelona fans, but this is, I think the kind of tie where you're happy he's there because he's going to play it safe. I'm not sure Dembele is going to be back, and which means that he might not play Coutinho and go with a, just a straight four-man midfield and have somebody deputized to make sure Pogba doesn't create anything, keep his full back slow so you don't get caught behind, and wait for Messi to do something in the first leg and see if United get a little bit freaked out, a little bit frenetic, because uh, United can only really beat you so many ways in you know in in the current incarnation, and he's very aware that this is a hundred and eighty minute uh, clash, and and I think a draw would would do him just fine. We saw in the last round as well. If you believe um, Lou Van Hal, United can only play in one way at the minute um, is by counterattacking. And um, if you saw that interview that he gave to uh, BBC the week before last, and I think you know. I'm sure Barcelona would be well aware of that, so I kind of agree that you know it might not be the uh, the first leg, might not be the, the most free flowing, and I guess Barcelona would be quite satisfied to, to sort of take it back to the new camp with you know with things even. So James, how do you see this one playing out? And who do you think Van Gaal will be supporting in this game? <laughs> 
when the draw was made, I, I thought this was maybe, maybe the toughest one to call. I think particularly because at that stage, you know, you really sort of felt the kind of social magic was still there. And who knows, may, maybe it will reappear. But obviously United have dipped. And I, I think, you know, we've talked about the problems that they've had, giving up a ton of shots in their last few games. And Matic really having looked quite poor since he came back. And, and Young also being a bit of a liability. So I think in some ways it's a shame that this match isn't taking place sort of a month ago when United were on that real high. I think obviously Pogba is, is key for, for United. As we've spoken about, I think Barcelona are not by any means infallible. I, I don't think that the the centre-back pairing of Piquet and Longley is, is that good. United don't appear to be on, on the kind of top of their form at the moment. So I, I think obviously Barcelona are, are clear favourites in this one. And finally, Ajax face Juventus, Gab. They, of course, knocked out the holders Real Madrid in the last round. So can the Dutch side see off Ronaldo and co? They did knock out Real Madrid. I mean, I think a lot of things had to come together in that return leg uh, at the Bernabeu after, they, of course, they lost at home. Logic suggests to me that Juventus, this is their season. This is why they're there. So I think they'll be a lot more conservative, certainly in the first leg, away to Ajax. The suggestion that Cristiano Ronaldo might be back, I'm still a little bit skeptical because it's a muscular injury, so normally you don't necessarily want to take a chance. And let's face it, if you're Juventus, you're supposed to knock out Ajax even without Cristiano. So probably better off to go out there, play it safe in the first leg. You've got Moise Ken, who's who's on fire. It's I think it's six goals in his last six games, including internationals. So just do it that way take the hit in the first leg, and then sort it out at home in the return. So, yeah, I would definitely lean Juve on this one. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. OK, Sunday saw perhaps one of the greatest FA Cup semi-finals of all time. Wolves were 2-0 up with 11 minutes to go at Wembley before an incredible Watford fight back forced extra time and eventually a 3-2 victory. Gab, did you feel the magic of the FA Cup? I did. I, I, I really enjoyed this game. Somebody made the point on Twitter, I forget who, perhaps Michael Cox, that when you have two counter-attacking teams facing each other and... Again, I'm not going to be reductive about Wolves and Watford, but they're certainly two teams that counterattack really well. You often either get a really bad game or you get a really good game. And this was definitely a really, really good game. Um, It was fun also to see both teams playing with two strikers um, up front. Two very different combinations, the way Dini and and Andre Gray combined, are very different from the work that Jalta does with with Raul Jimenez. But... um, yeah, I mean, what a game. And, and that that Delefeu goal, his his first goal, you're kind of lost for words because you don't understand with no back lift how he can get under the ball like that and strike it so cleanly. I mean, it looked like some sort of golf wedge or something. I mean, it was pretty remarkable stuff. Yeah, it certainly was. And, and Javi Garcia becomes just the second Watford manager to take them to an FA Cup final after the late Graham Taylor back in 1984. So, James, sum up the job that Garcia has done at Watford. I think Garcia has done a superb job. I mean, obviously, I think if you look at 
not just saying this because they fed them yesterday, but I think in terms of their results this season, obviously Watford are very, very similar to Wolves in both in their league position and in how well they've done in the Cups. And obviously Nuno, I think, has rightly come in for a huge amount of credit. But I think there's an argument that Javi Garcia has done as much with probably less the Watford squad you know, I, I think it's it's fine, but it's not. It's not. I don't think it's. You know, I don't think it's a, a great score with maybe with maybe the kind of individual attacking quality that that Wolves have, for example. Obviously, they do have some good players, but I think Garcia has done an outstanding job. I think obviously he's he he came in and at the end of last season he really kind of tightened them up a bit defensively. They do, as Gab said, play mainly on the counter attack, but I think he's done an outstanding job. That there was actually. I think if you if you remember at the start of this season, I think a few people actually tipped Watford for relegation, and that sort of didn't feel like a kind of totally outrageous shout at the time. So I think he's been absolutely superb. Alan, this is where I wind you up since you're the the ex pro here, because when ex pros don't know what to say about teams, they and they have a bunch of British players, they talk about the importance of the British spine. So obviously Ben Foster didn't play yesterday, but you know he's been a big part of it, and you've got. Craig Cathcart at the back, Will Hughes, Andre Gray, Troy Deeney. Is that the secret? Is it, is it that that the British spine, which is so important? Um, I know Grassi has spoken in the past quite a bit about it's more about senior players behind the scenes, and he sort of made a point um, after the quarterfinals. Actually, I was at the quarterfinals with Crystal Palace, and he made a point um, specifically about Aurelio Gomez, who obviously has been sitting on the bench throughout the league because Foster has been. You know, really, really good, um, making the point that having these older pros who aren't necessarily involved but are taking on this leadership role in the dressing room, and I think they now call Gomez the, the captain of the bench because he's been obviously been sitting on the sidelines throughout the league, um, and I think that's probably a far bigger deal. Um, they've got quite a few sort of players who, you know, who, who have been around the block, and I think, I mean, Dini's sort of it's it's such a great story in the sense that you know he's, he's come from sort of you know he obviously had these off the field difficulties several years ago and he mentioned in a couple of post match interviews um, after yesterday's game that you know several seasons back he was actually paying to play football and um, so you know the journey he's, he's been on is, is quite remarkable and I think in many senses he's you know he's a role model to a lot of people in terms of you know someone who can sort of rehabilitate themselves from being in this you know the tricky position to becoming you know a, a really good footballer first of all and also somebody's quite you know he's got this sort of way of getting under opponent's skin uh, which I I mean I quite enjoy usually I, I found the sort of the, the biggest role of Jimenez over wearing the mask at full time yesterday a little bit weird and in the sense that you know he's just qualified for an FA Cup final I wouldn't really be too concerned about sort of having a go at the opposition striker for how he, how he celebrated his goal in fact Troy Deeney's said about Raheem mask, quote, there's a bit of me that wants to say something nasty, but I won't. I'm glad he put that mask on. Now he can wear it out now. He's a loser. <laughs> I Is this kind of overstepping the mark, or is it just also kind of maybe don't wear a mask when, you know, you score your, your, your tune up, but there was still, what, like a good half hour to go? Yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, it's, it's just, Silly celebration, but I just thought that I think Dini's thought process in terms of you know that's come into his head when you know he should be celebrating reaching the final, but why is this sort of bothering you now, sort of after after the game? And I just found it a little bit of a, a, a strange dig. 
Do you know if he like ran behind the goal before sort of the second half kicked off to drop the mask? Because it, it seemed like it was actually kind of waving behind the net for him to pick up. That's a good that, point. I find that yeah, even weirder. The logistics and also... Was Fecundo Sava used to keep it tucked down his shin pad. Yeah. Was it his shin pad or was it his shorts? I seem to remember Fecundo Sava had it, had it tucked down his shin pad. But right. It was a smaller mask too. Yeah, but and Raul Jimenez has a larger head too. As it was, Wolves, as we were saying, 11 minutes to go. They were, it was all looking very good for them. So how did they let it slip away, James? I mean, Nuno actually said words to those effects. He said something like, we have to accept that we had it and we let it get away. I think Nuno will reflect that maybe um, they maybe went a bit too defensive after they scored the second goal and, and they just sort of stopped playing. And, and then obviously there's the kind of the question of Nuno's substitutions. He obviously took off... Ruben Neves and Diogo Jota and obviously Watford then equalised in stoppage time and Do you know why he took off Ruben Neves? Well I, I think just to kind of to sort of shore it up basically but that, that'd be weird to take off Neves I, I don't of, know. Of all people you would yeah. think I mean I'm, I'm I mean, assuming he must have had a knock the, the Jota one I, I can see I mean him, you know hindsight being twenty twenty. You always want to leave Jota on because he can dribble, he can win a free kick or whatever. But by the same token, if you know, you've know you got some pretty quick players on the bench, you're going to play on the counter, maybe there's somebody else you want to have on. Although, maybe not Cav. But but yeah, that was the, the Neves one was odd. I, I, I'm assuming he must have had a knock. Maybe. I've, I think those two changes combined somewhat neutered, although he did obviously bring on Adama Traore later. But I think it had the effect of somewhat kind of neutering Wolves' attacking threat in that 30 minute period of extra time it's always difficult and I'm, you know Nuno of course would have known that and he, you know when he took Jota off it's the kind of the gamble that you take you know that you're trying to shore it up for the remainder of normal time but you also know that there's extra time and I suppose potentially penalties I suppose you know Jota would probably have been a penalty taker had it got that far that's the gamble that you take and I, I'm sure Nuno would have kind of would have would have weighed that up and I think ultimately that that gamble didn't pay off so it is Watford then who will face Manchester City in next month's final. I'm going to ask you all, starting with you, Alan, do you give Watford any chance against City? Uh, no, no, oh. um, I don't. I mean, I, I was kind of thinking, you know, you think about Wigan um, winning the FA Cup a couple of years back and sort of find that, yeah, you know, these shocks can happen. Um, but depending on how the next few weeks go for City and whether they kind of, if they are indeed fighting to win the quadruple, I just couldn't give Watford much much of a chance. James? You know, I, I think I would give Watford maybe a 25 or 30% chance. You know, it's a one-off game. Watford are good. They're not as good as Manchester City. That Manchester City defence has been pretty outstanding since the turn of the year. But I think they're certainly, you know, I think Watford are certainly better equipped to give Manchester City a good game than, for example, Brighton were in the semi-final. But yeah, I mean, obviously City will be will be heavy favourites. Come on, Gab, give the Watford fans something to cheer about. Yeah, no, I'm 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 with James. I mean, I I think they have a shot. I and mean, when it's 25, 30 percent, I'm not sure about the Wigan analogy, given that Wigan got relegated last year and Watford won't be relegated this year. They can actually sit there and just prepare for the final week in, week out, and just throw the rest of the games of the season if they want to. Whereas City obviously have a bunch of bigger fish to fry. That midfield of Ducor and Capu, if they're on their day, I think is as good as almost any midfield in the Premier League. And the other thing is, 
they have a lot of size. And I know they have maybe exploited set pieces as much or, or as well as, as they could have. But that's one area where we're on paper. I, again, if you remember under Pellegrini and when Pep first got there, it felt like City were conceding a lot on set pieces because this is not a very big team physically. Between Mariapa, the two central midfielders, both of whom are, 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 are tall, and Troidini's certainly a huge load, and, and Andre Gray can get up there too. And they've got guys who can do the, who can, who can put the ball in the box effectively. So I, I don't think this is a foregone conclusion at all. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Earlier on Sunday, Arsenal missed the chance to go third in the Premier League, losing 1-0 to Everton at Goodison Park. Now, there are only two teams in the top four divisions in England who haven't kept a clean sheet away from home this season. One is Arsenal, the other is Ipswich, who are bottom of the championship. Gab, why are they so leaky on their travels, Arsenal? I don't know. And why are they so incredibly inconsistent? I thought this was like, you know, good Arsenal. Was it they won like five in a row or something? It boggles the mind how they could play so bad. And I don't want to take anything away from, from Everton. They were obviously hugely motivated. They're, they strung a couple of good results together. They have good players. They seem to be first to, to every ball. You gave up a goal from a freaking throw-in, which really should never happen. And, you know, the guy who scores it turns 37 this summer, Jack Yelka, um, shouldn't have even been playing. Um but even in the second half, when they seem incapable of attacking without conceding at the back. And I don't think you can just go and dump this all on, on Mustafi and, uh, and, and Papastatopoulos. There was obviously a breakdown in midfield. El Nani didn't shield the way he should have, which is why he came off at halftime. But I just think mentally they, they really weren't right for this game. And, and that, to me, is something that really ought to be a concern for, for Arsenal. It's interesting because obviously I think... Clearly, Unai Emery has improved this team a bit. I think they've already, you know, obviously before this game, 
had matched last season's points total. So, I mean, you kind of have to say, you know, Emery has improved them a bit. But to me, they're very similar to what they were under Arsene Wenger. They're just a kind of slightly better version of what they were. I mean, they're very, very good at home. They have games at home where they're sort of very freewheeling in attack. And, you know, they can really sort of devastate teams. You know, they obviously have a lot of pace and individual quality in attack. But that's very inconsistent away. They still seem to have, you know, this certain kind of fragility or softness when they go away from home. And they're, you know, they're really, really inconsistent would be a kind of polite way of putting it defensively. They're, they're, they're just not very good defensively. They're, right, they're an average Premier League team defensively. Well, Gilfie Sigurdsson had as many shots as the whole Arsenal team combined. So it was a poor performance all over the pitch for Unai Emery's side. And Alan, given their away form, given that four of their last six games are away from home, can they finish in the top four? I still think they can, uh, based on not being entirely convinced by Chelsea or Manchester United. Um, three of those four away games are Watford, Wolves and I think Leicester, um, which are all big tests considering they're sort of, you know, those three teams are still fighting to be sort of considered the best of the rest. Um, so, Chelsea, Alan, I'm going to jump in and rudely interrupt yeah. you here because you never quite know. When you place those teams, Watford, Wolves and Leicester, when you face those teams in April and May, and those are teams that have had good seasons. Watford obviously will be looking ahead to the to the FA Cup final. Leicester are on a great run. We're going to talk about them. Wolves are a good team. But aren't there motivational issues? I mean, we see this every year. Isn't this who you want to be facing late in the season rather than teams that have something to, 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 have to play for? I wouldn't be too sure in terms of Watford because you're going to have players who are sort of, you know, cliche as it sounds, fighting for a place in the final, in their place in the team. Gracia has sort of spoken about the depth of the squad and how he sort of keeps every every position sort of open until sort of the day before a game before deciding. Obviously, it doesn't apply to all the 11 positions, but, you know, he does like to kind of keep options options available. Um, Wolves, you know, have shown throughout the season that they really do thrive against the the top six. And, you know, those games seem to suit them far more than they do against lesser opponents because they can sit back and they can break with the with the pace they have on the counter attack and Leicester have been, you know, since Brendan Rogers has come in have have been in really, really good form. And it, the reason why I do think Arsenal still, you know, have a very good chance of finishing fourth is that because Chelsea have been obviously quite erratic, have to go to Anfield, also have to go to Old Trafford, United have to play City and of course then have to play Chelsea as well. So, you know, they're going to be taking they're going to be dropping points along the way as well. So I wouldn't rule, you know, Arsenal are in the fourth, and, you know, I'd still consider them perhaps favourites of those three to, to still finish up there. Gab, you mentioned there previously about not wanting to take anything away from Everton. So let's look at the the Everton perspective. Three clean sheets in a row, four clean sheets in five. James, are we seeing things starting to click under Marco Silva? Yeah, it does seem to be that way. Um, this was sort of a combination of... Uh, of a, I thought a really poor attacking Arsenal performance, but I do think Everton played really well. This Everton squad, as we kind of thought at the start of the season, this squad has a lot of individual quality. I think, you know, I think that midfield double pivot of, of Idrissa Gueye and Andre Gomez is potentially really, really good. Um, and what do you make of Calvert Lewin? Because I, I know obviously he doesn't score a lot of goals and everything. You know, I thought he had a tremendous game 
he seems very awkward to, to, to play against. And I think one of the things people, people often might talk about is athleticism or whatever, but I think his movement is really, really good. He's, he's always looking to, to try to favor teammates. You know, he's, he's busy, but he doesn't waste energy. It's in an intelligent way. Yeah, I really, I really like Calvert-Lewin um, in common with a lot of the sort of that generation of young centre-forwards. Whether he can score regularly at, at the top level remains to be seen, but I, I, I like him personally. So you might have noticed that we don't have any predictions to tot up, but obviously while, um, while you were <laughs> you away... You covered me, I'm sure. Yes, Natalie, I beat you both weeks, so the score is now 15-14. So let's move on to quick hits. Manchester City has predicted down Brighton 1-0, and there's not much to say about them that we haven't already said, but Gibrant, you have some interesting theories about Chris Hewton's approach that you wrote about in the newspaper. Well, I just thought one thing that was interesting about um, Brighton on Saturday was that on a seven-man bench, it didn't have a single midfielder. Chris Hewton went with three defenders and three forwards, basically, and ultimately brought on his three forwards, Andone, Izquierdo and Locadia. And obviously we have to say, in fairness to Brighton, they are missing Pascal Gross, who I think was a big miss. But to me, it seemed like, it felt like that was a bit of a mistake maybe because he threw on the three forwards and what you eventually had was a sort of, a real kind of front-loaded team where you had lots of kind of attackers but not really anyone to convey the ball upfield effectively and I think it was quite telling that... You get Lewis Dong to boot it from the back. Well, yeah. I mean, or, you know, um, someone to knock it in from a set piece. But I, th- and I think it was quite telling that Brighton's three substitutes combined for a total of two completed passes, which... Is that right? That's correct, yes. Don't think go according to plan. <laughs> no. Crystal Palace grab three points away to Newcastle, but let's face it, both teams probably are safe this season. So, Alan, let's talk about instead Luka Milivojevic, who has converted 10 penalties this season, one shy of the record. What's more surprising, that he's scored so many or that Palace have been awarded that many? Um, well, according to Milivojevic, uh, all the credit should go to Sam Allardyce because they weren't really taking many penalties before Allardyce came in at Crystal Palace and then they began practicing and he said he was sort of second choice and then his come into first choice and he scored 10 of the 11 I think he'd, he'd missed there's a nice graphic in, in this morning's paper which sort of shows where each attempt sort of went and the only one he sent down the middle was actually saved by Pickford earlier in the season um, I think you know if you're to believe Wolf Zaha um, who said that you know he said earlier in the season that he, need, he would need to have his leg broken for an opponent to be sent off uh, you'd be surprised that they've won so many penalties and if you actually look at it Zaha has been fouled for six of those um, which I actually found slightly surprising because I think sometimes you know he is harshly done by um, by referees but you know it's quite quite interesting to note that and also one other thing was that the record holder is actually Andy Johnson who said it while at Palace I think in 04-05 so um, that's a nice uh, My memory of Andy Johnson that year with all those goals and all those penalties it just generally involves him falling over in the box. And I mean, I, I bet he won all his penalties. Like here, it's more of a team effort between uh, Zaha and Milivojevic. Um, <laughs> but Andy Johnson, that was a real solo affair. Natalie, one for you. Now, I remember the Cowley brothers and their big FA Cup run with non-league Lincoln two years ago. 
What are they up to now? <laughs> well, you're right about the FA Cup. They reached the quarterfinals two years ago, uh, and a few weeks later, they were promoted to the Football League. Now, uh, Danny Cowley's men are the leaders of League Two, on the verge of promotion to the third tier for the first time in 20 years. They won two nil. At second place, MK Dons on Saturday, meaning they are just now one win away from promotion. Five and a half thousand Lincoln fans made the trip to Milton Keynes. That's their biggest away following of the century. That's bigger than on their cup run as well. And if, as expected, they go up, it'll be a second promotion in three years under the Cowleys. And and they're both there, right? The brother and the the brother. Yeah, the brother and the brother. (laughs) Danny and his bro. What's the brother's name? Do we know? (laughs) Nicky. Danny and Nikki. Yes. Gotcha. There you gotcha. go. So, yeah, look out for uh, Lincoln next season in uh, League One, perhaps. Now, James, I-, I know you like numbers, so how about these? Bournemouth lost at home to Burnley, which means they have won one of nine since January. It's been a similar story in previous years, leading Eddie Howe to review how they work. So any theories as to why they suddenly stopped performing in spring? I have a very kind of um, irrational Eddie Howe theory. Oh. Um it also involves Sean Dyche. Is that why you've got the glasses on? Yes. Um, <laughs> I've come with the glasses prepared to deliver my conspiracy theory. Um, my, my theory is that Eddie Howe and Sean Dyche, who some would argue are the two kind of foremost English managers of their generation, I think overall are both good managers um, in very different ways. But there seems to be some sort of glitch in the space-time continuum where they can never be good at the same time. Uh, Eddie Howe's Bournemouth and Sean Dyche's Burnley are never doing well at the same time. When Burnley are doing well, Bournemouth are terrible. In this season, Bournemouth had a really good start to the season and Burnley were obviously abject. And now Burnley have kind of obviously started to play quite well again since the turn of the year. Bournemouth are really poor again. Clearly, that's the only rational explanation for this sudden decline in Bournemouth's form. Allison isn't here, uh, so I can say this. If the league began when he was appointed, Brendan Rodgers would be right up near the top of the table. I haven't figured it out, but I'm sure Brendan has. Alan, is it the Rodgers effect? Is there such a thing? Or is it that Leicester have some absurdly good players from Wilfred Ndidi to Yuri Tielemans, from James Madison to Ricardo Pereira to whoever else you, you care to name, and that maybe it was actually Claude Puel who was screwing everything up before? Um, obviously, the squad had been playing below par in sort of 12 final, final weeks, but then you sort of look at the opponents Rodgers has faced. Uh, lost to Watford in his first game, but since then they've played Fulham, Burnley, Bournemouth and Huddersfield. Uh, not exactly the, the biggest challenge. I think they have improved drastically, and I think Yori Tielemans has been, you know, obviously on low, he's obviously on loan, but he has been really, really good um, since joining. You do look at the fi- their remaining fixtures and you kind of think, I think with Newcastle and West Ham next, and then after that they face Arsenal, Man City and Chelsea. Um, so, you know, the winning run may continue in the next two fixtures, but beyond that, I think we we'll, may see a bigger test of, uh, of Rogers' managerial genius. You know what's funny? While he was talking, I was listening to him, of course, but, Alan, I was working out a combined... Leicester, Arsenal, 11. It's really, really close. In fact, there might even be more Leicester players in there than Arsenal players. I mean, you take Schmeichel over Leno, right? Yeah. No. You take... No, absolutely not. I think Leno's been... You really... have a thing for Leno. Is no, not weird, at all. But... I think Leno's been really good this season. You take Ricardo Pereira over Bellerin any day of the week, also because the guy's injured and can't walk. Uh, the centre-backs, I'm a big Socrates guy, but Harry Maguire's 
pretty darn good and probably better than Mustafi or 40-year-old Kasialny. Chilwell's an England international, yeah. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. impressed. Would you take Chilwell over in your combined 11? In a back four, Chilwell, yeah. Yes, we're okay, well, we're playing back four the okay. way God intended, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> would you have Torreira in, mid- in the centre of midfield, maybe? But then I, lo- I, I love Leicester's midfielders. I think they've been. You love Chilwell because he's Belgian, like you. Chilwell's, so. Ndidi. Um, yeah. So no room for Torreira and Granite and. and then, you, see, you see what I'm driving at here? It's tough, yeah. I mean. Madison? I mean, I, I, I like Madison. I probably have, would, would have Madison as well. Would you take Vardy over Laka no. or Alba? No, no I didn't think so. <laughs> but still, it's it's a really good it's side. Leicester top heavy, basically. Yeah, I'm just saying, like the in terms of wages and spending, there may be a big gap between top six and everything mm-hmm. else. In terms of actual quality players, and I think we need to give a shout out to who who does the recruitment here and and, and the youth development. In the case of obviously Madison and and, and Barnes, well, I guess Madison came from Norwich, but. Yeah. Uh, Barnes's and, and Chilwell and Damari Gray. Chowdhury. And Chowdhury. Chowdhury, yeah. I mean, this is this is a really, really good side, a really talented side. Okay, Gab, one for you. You wrote about uh, Bayern's 5-0 thumping of Borussia Dortmund in the German Classico, yet you still don't seem impressed. No, I mean, I was impressed with Bayern obviously turning the tide again and they lost the momentum and they gained it back and now they're up by point. Um, but Dortmund were terrible in this game. So many individual errors. What was impressive, people like Hummels and Thomas Muller, who some had written off, came up really big in this game. But like I said, Dortmund made it easy for them. And I think looking forward, I was kind of surprised to learn that Bayern have the fifth highest wage bill um, in Europe behind Real Madrid, Barcelona, and, and the two Manchester sides. There's not that much to show for it. I think a lot of the teams kind of gone a tiny bit stale and it'll be interesting to see where they've spent their money on in the summer is actually on on two defenders and and Pavard and and Lucas Hernandez two World Cup winners but you kind of look at it and you say all right well three of their four defenders Alaba Kimmich and Nicolas Sule are pretty darn good and then you also have Boateng and Hummels so then did you really need two more defenders I suppose Kimmich can play midfield. I, I don't really see the clarity of vision going forward. So, stand to be corrected. But they are on their way to making it, what, six in a row, seven in a row? Absurd. I did see the goals, and the defending from Borussia Dortmund was just shambolic. <laughs> yeah. You see Zagadu? Poor guy. He's, he's just a kid, but whatever. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, James Gearbrand and Alan Smith. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times, and you also get The Sunday Times, too, with that. Uh, And you'll enjoy award-winning journalism online, but also on your smartphone or tablet. Just one pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back on Thursday, looking ahead to Liverpool versus Chelsea. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Thank you.